indeed. Well, these are the opening chords of a song about art over evil. It's about the transcendent power of creativity in the face of human conflict and destruction. I wrote it in 2009 as I was finishing the book Art and Upheaval. Each verse of this song, also called Art and Upheaval, rose up from one of six stories about artists working in the trenches, in communities, in upheaval, facing conflict and disorder. Some people think you can't beat the devil with a song. Actually, I would bet that most folks, including you, would probably agree, and I get that. I really do. That's the story we all grew up with. Art is not powerful. It's soft, even weak. One of the questions I was asked over and over when I was touring the book was whether I really believed that human creativity and imagination could help vanquish the forces of evil. My answer then and now is absolutely. Not as a matter of faith or conviction, but because I've seen it firsthand in America's prisons and jails, in war-torn Yugoslavia and Northern Ireland, post Khmer Rouge Cambodia in South Africa, in Watts, California, the list goes on and on. Needless to say, today's headlines remind us that those terrible, fearful front lines are an ever-present feature of human existence. Sometimes we notice, sometimes we don't. I get that too. That said, for this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, we're going to revisit some of those art and upheaval stories, along with the song of the same name, to make a point. Yeah, some people think you cannot beat the devil with a song, but they don't know. Story, story, story. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Now, before I crank up the Victrola again, I'd like to begin with some digital distance calisthenics, if you're willing. The muscles I'd like us to exercise are pretty easy to find, but often overlooked. Some people call them the imaginative muscles. So, here we go. Just relax, close your eyes if you like, and open your minds as you consider the following scenes. Imagine working in a theater company for no money, 12 hours a day, six days a week, crafting performances that few will ever see and will likely land you in jail. Imagine hundreds of newly minted art school graduates whose number one goal is to use their talent and creativity to advance democracy and economic justice across the land. Imagine a solo exhibit of paintings as one of the only visual records of a reign of terror in which over two million people died. Imagine an internationally recognized writer's program forced into bankruptcy and burned to the ground by a government that feared its power to change hearts and minds. Imagine street performance and graffiti art that somehow helped to bring down a brutal despot and end a decade of war. Imagine having to cancel your after-school dance class due to local bombing. Imagine a Supreme Court building that is an art gallery with judges as docents. Imagine having to sit down with rival militia leaders to negotiate the individual lines of your community play. 
Imagine poetry readings conducted at the barrel of a gun. Imagine waking up every day knowing that your work as an artist is critical to the survival of your people. Imagine knowing that your art making could get you killed and doing it anyways. And imagine hearing this from one of your country's most respected spiritual and political leaders. These images powerfully complement the words of the Bill of Rights. Given our history, they serve as an apt reminder that words, however inspiring and lyrical, have been used as much to subvert as to create. It is therefore necessary to portray our commitment to human rights in pictures which are less open to corruption. These are the words of Bishop Desmond Tutu, spoken at the opening of a 1996 exhibition called Images of Human Rights at the Municipal Art Museum in Durban, South Africa. The images he's referring to are part of a portfolio of prints by a South African artist commissioned by an organization called Artists for Humanity. Each print represents one of the 27 articles of the then very new South African Bill of Rights. They also represent an important moment in the 400-year South African freedom struggle, a struggle in which thousands of artists, dancers, actors, writers, and musicians joined the front lines as full participants. This scene with Reverend Tutu and the others that I shared are snapshots from a journey of inspiration and learning I had the privilege of taking from 2001 to 2009. That eight-year odyssey taught me a lot about the power and persistence of the human spirit. It also took me to some amazing places from the U.S. to Asia, Africa, Europe, Australia, and back. As I mentioned, the book chronicling this journey, Art and Upheaval, Artists on the World's Front Lines was published in 2010. A year later, I released a CD with some songs that were inspired by the stories in the book. For this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, I'm going to dig into the song Art and Upheaval and the stories they represent. Before we get into it, I want to begin with a shout-out to my musical partner in crime, Alan Friedman. I know it's a cliché, but it's true. No Alan, no recording. Without his brilliant production chops, his fabulous bass lines, and his friendship, that music would still be in my head, keeping me up at night. In fact, it was Alan's idea to assemble and record our rhythm section first and then build a different ensemble on top for every song on the CD. On the Art and Upheaval track, in addition to the drums, bass, and rhythm guitar, there were seven other players, including a horn section. I have to say... Making this song was an extraordinary journey of music and history. In these two verses, we travel to Cambodia and In South Africa. Now, we all know that poetry and song lyrics often make use of metaphor. But it's important for me to say that the line, 
in the crimson flood of the killing field in that first verse is not a metaphor. It's a photo-perfect description of the reign of terror and death that the Khmer Rouge visited on the people of Cambodia that killed nearly two million people in less than four years. This was the annihilation of 21% of the population, which included 95% of the country's artists and traditional culture bearers. The story in the book also recounts how some of Cambodia's surviving artists worked to bring their country's 3,000-year-old traditional culture literally back from the dead. Now, that feral child in the second verse comes from the South African story I shared. It alludes to the wild new spirit of democracy trying to find its way through the pride-open gates of the newly reborn South Africa. Here's another verse from the song that tells a distinctly American story about rap, poets, revolution, and a place called Watts. In 1965, sparked by an abusive traffic stop in decades of poverty and neglect, Watts, California exploded in an upheaval of violence and destruction that left 28 dead, nearly 600 wounded, and caused over $400 million in damage. That's 2022 dollars. Beyond that, the conflagration left an already struggling African-American community in ruins. One of the few bright spots to emerge in the aftermath of what some call the Watts Rebellion was the creation of the Watts Writers' Workshop. Starting small, as the smoke was just settling on 103rd Street, the workshop became a magnet for writers of all kinds in a community that, believe it or not, had not one library for more than 600,000 souls. For others, it was a needed way station for a life of writing. The work that rose up revealed a motherload of distinctive and talented voices. One of those voices was a young man named Omdi Hampton. just heard is the part of the song known as the bridge. A bridge is like a scene shift in a movie that provides a contrast to the rest of the song. Now with this song, we decided to use the bridge to change channels entirely to literally take the listener back to Watts in the 1960s. To do this, we asked Amdi if we could sample the poem Pimping, Leaning, and Feening from his 60s recording Black Voices in the Streets in Watts. It was a tricky fit, rhythmically and pitch-wise, but I think it worked. Amdi's doctor's degree from the Sidewalk University makes his point perfectly. Here's what he has to say in the book about how he learned about the power of words. I learned the power of words in the insane asylum. I had a doctor who was insane. He had control of me. He told me I had a problem, and I said, 
I didn't have a problem. He said, explain to me then why you don't have a problem. I thought I had a pretty nice gift for Gab, so I started laying it out. When I got through, he sat back and he took every word that I said and tore them into little pieces and threw them back in my face. He destroyed me with my own words. It made me see the power of words. I walked out of that room. I said to myself, someday I'm going to learn how to use that power. After he was released, Amdi eventually learned to harness that power at the Watts Writers' Workshop. While there, he joined fellow writers Richard Didot and Otis O'Solomon to form the legendary Watts Prophets. The book chronicles the Prophets' 40-year history as pioneering urban poets who laid the foundation for rap, hip-hop, the rise of spoken word, and mentored multiple generations of Los Angeles writers. Unfortunately, loss and betrayal were a regular presence in the Prophets' story, but so was their resilience and their numerous rebounds. Actually, losing something that is precious and creating a path to the next chapter is a constant for all the stories in the book. This pattern of apparent endings and rebirth is also at the heart of the song's chorus, which begins with a kind of shrugging recognition of the audaciousness of the tune's song beats devil premise, but then doubles down on it with a challenge. Go ahead, take my voice away. I'll just start dancing, and if you take my legs, I'll be singing. And finally, you could take my life, but what I've created, my art, will live forever. Some people think we can't beat the devil with a song, but they don't know. They don't know. Take a mile for a summer dancer. Break my legs and I will sing. Take a mile. Another recurring element in the prophet's story is fire, both metaphoric and literal. This is true as well for Serbia's Da Theater. The burning stage curtains in that verse takes you to Belgrade, Serbia, and an extraordinary group of women performers who call themselves Da, which means breath in Serbo-Croatian. As the 20th century was coming to a close, they were taking their anti-war, anti-Milosevic performances to the streets in the midst of the four wars that devastated the former Yugoslavia from 1990 to 2000. This excerpt from the book describes their defiant and very risky first performance in Belgrade in July of 1992. The afternoon is steamy. The hot concrete on the square of the Republic is thick with workers intent on their journey home. Diana and Jadrenka shuffle back and forth in the art gallery on the edge of the square, watching the rushing river of people through the windows, arms crossed, 
Staring out into the square, they try not to look like novice theater directors waiting for their first curtain. But this is impossible. There is no curtain, and they are literally sweating with worry and fear. What did they think they were doing? Years of training for the stage only to debut here on the street in the middle of rush hour, bearing witness to an epidemic of not knowing, speaking words that have been disappeared, forgotten. They had all agreed this performance was unavoidable. The war that does not exist is destroying their country. The Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian men who are not being pulled from their beds in the middle of the night never to return can no longer be ignored. The cries of children who are not being cleansed from the cradle of their homelands must be heard. The mothers with no tears cannot remain invisible. In this interminable year of these things not happening, The noxious cloud of denial has obscured the Serbian sun. Someone must speak. It is time. The actors shed the coats that cover their black costumes and golden wings. One by one, they begin the action, first in the gallery and then stepping purposefully into the square. Solo journeys merge and break apart, then merge again. The surging crowd changes course to avoid the black forms moving against and across the flow. A few slow, glancing haltingly at the incongruous wings springing back and forth on the crude harnesses attached to the actor's back. Slowly, one of the actors, Maja Mitik, begins singing the lyrics culled from Bertolt Brecht's anti-war songs. In the dark times, Will there be singing in the dark times? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. The sun's last golden glow mingles with the glint of streetlights. Jadranka holds her breath as the angels maintain their circuitous journey across the square to the empty fountain at the center. The singing continues. When evil doing comes like falling rain, nobody calls out, stop. When crimes begin to pile up, they become invisible. When sufferings become unendurable, the cries are no longer heard. The cries, too, fall like rain in the summer. The actors move more intensely, trading lines that ring out across the square. Though Breck's lyrics are 60 years removed, they're shocking to hear. When the leaders speak of peace, the common folk know that war is coming. When the leaders curse war, the mobilization order is already written out. There's no mistaking what's being said here. This romance of blood and soil is an obscenity. With each passing line, the ugliness of the war is materializing in the square, and now, as more people stop and cluster, the congregation of angels is accorded the space they need to complete their mission. Diana scans the crowd. There are people in suits, mothers and children, students with their book bags, and yes, men in uniforms. Slowly, it dawns on her that there are soldiers everywhere watching the action, glancing nervously at each other, cradling 
their weapons. She feels like an acrophobic on the edge of a cliff, anticipating the gust of wind that will tip the balance one way or another. She is both exhilarated and terrified by the danger that this performance will come to a premature conclusion. But as the actors continue, nobody moves. They're all listening. Yeah, I guess it's true. Some people think you can't beat the devil with a song, or a painting, or a play. You know, when I started researching my book and looking for a publisher, a few folks were encouraging, but others thought I was just crazy. They said, sure, you might stumble on a stray artist here or there, trying to survive in the trenches, but give me a break. No artist worth their salt is going to be willing or able to do serious work in these conditions. I thought they were wrong, but I had no idea how wrong until I started to do my research. In a few short weeks of Internet searches and conversations with colleagues around the world, I found over 500 stories of what I was calling art and upheaval. Since that time, I've found thousands more, with thousands of variations and contexts and intentions. And along the way, I've come to know that if you scratch the surface of a human disaster, you'll find artists doing astonishingly courageous work in the midst of chaos and destruction. You might ask, why? What moves them? Well, to live, to eat, to kindle the human spirit, to bring peace or resolve conflict, to manifest beauty in the face of horror, or reveal the ugly truth in the face of denial, to rally, to bring order, or educate and inspire, to entertain, to heal, and most of all, to tell the story directly, obtusely, in code, as a joke, as a song in a pub, as a poem or a painting on the wall, as a play unfolding in a cramped living room, as a dance in the street. All of these stories are about communities that have been deeply wounded, searching for a next step in the direction of equilibrium and healing. I think we would all agree that we live in a time and place where our fellow citizens are Families, our communities, our institutions are searching for a way to bring some kind of balance to an out-of-kilter world. A balance between the safe and the challenging, the material and the transcendent, tradition and modernity, opportunity and responsibility, chaos and order. A balanced future that honors and respects all of the community's stories. A balanced community that trusts itself to embrace the full range of these stories, the good and the bad, the settling and the unsettling. I think these stories about artists making a difference in some of the world's most out-of-kilter places can teach us something about using the creative process to bring some balance to our own communities. In the end, that's what most of us are out here hoping for. Communities that engage their creators to help weave a strong fabric out of the many stories that define our histories, our struggles, our values, our beliefs, and our dreams. We're going to conclude this episode of Change the Story, Change the World by playing Art and Upheaval, the song, 
in its entirety, with a nod to Rishikesh Hiraway and his fabulous podcast, Song Exploder, and to our composer, Judy Munson, for the wonderful soundscape she created for this episode. As you listen, the final two verses will take you to Northern Ireland in 1999, where Protestant and Catholic theater artists are seeking reconciliation on the broken road of the Troubles. And Australia, where former soldiers and the indigenous Pijinjara people use theater to help heal the social, environmental, and health impacts of the fission cloud atom bomb tests of the 50s and 60s. Before we bid you adieu, if you're interested in learning more about all these artists working on the front lines, check out the links to Art and Upheaval, the tune, and the books in our show notes. So for Change the Story, Change the World, I'm Bill Cleveland, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please stay well, do good, and spread the good word. Yeah.